All right. Well, of course, Human Events Daily is brought to you by Turning Point USA. So what's going on at Turning Point? New announcement the next night, debate night. It comes out tonight. You've got to check this out. Charlie Kirk versus Buck Angel. The new TPUSA debate night all about porn culture and the trans agenda. How do you get there? TPUSA.com slash debate night. We'll put the link in the comments. Also coming up June 2nd to 4th, the Young Women's Leadership Summit. This has really become one of the biggest events that Turning Point holds around the year, and it's all for young women. So go get your tickets. TPUSA.com slash YWLS. Make your reservation today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard today's edition of Human Events Daily, powered by Turning Point USA. Today's top stories first, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation hearing day four. We're going to break down all the fireworks. Next, today is the one month uh, mark of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a ground update here on day 29. Third, Russia has met with their fellow BRICS ambassador nations. The currency wars have begun. And finally, Ukraine has begun blocking trans women from escaping as refugees. All this and more ahead, Human Events Daily. On the internet, with one click, you can receive, you can distribute tens of thousands. You can be doing this for 15 minutes, and all of a sudden, you are looking at 30, 40, 50 years in prison. Good. Cut. Good. I understand. Absolutely Senator, good. I hope you are. To do good. Allow her to finish, please. I hope you go to jail for 50 years. If you're on the internet trolling for images please. of children and sexual exploitation, so you don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a that horrible thing. The- so there's KBJ with this infamous, now infamous clip, which is actually far, far. Look, I, I know there's a lot of memes and a lot of jokes going around about her refusing to define what a woman is. I'm not a biologist, right? And it is kind of ridiculous, of course, that a Supreme Court nominee would make that kind of argument. But let's dig a little bit deeper, because I think the far more illustrative answer that she gave us is of this one here asking the question about child pornography, because she seems so incredibly focused and hung up on this idea that the distribution method, the method of conveyance of child pornography trafficking, whether it's someone who is distributing or collecting, that the method, the mode that is used for this communication, because it is digital versus analog when the laws are written, that that should change, right? That should change someone's sentence. And yet you never hear anything in this judicial philosophy about the actual reason for why the law was written in the first place to protect children who are the victims of child pornography. So just to be very clear about this, every piece of child pornography is an image or a video of a child being raped, either raped or exploited, because children obviously cannot give consent. And when you have a market for this, when you have a market for this type of material, that creates incentive for people to create more of it. That's the chain that you're trying to disrupt. That's the network that you're trying to disrupt. You want to stop people from doing it in the first place by de-incentivizing this type of behavior. 
And if you actually look at the way this is working now, you know, it's not just videos and images that have been sent like in the past, right? You can even have situations where, and I've looked at multiple federal cases like this, where they have centers where this is being done on live video in real time overseas. So they could be in Thailand, they could be in the Philippines, they could be somewhere in Eastern Europe, right? Obviously, Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, areas where this is being done. And so the pedophile can be inside the United States or somewhere in Western Europe, and then is then sending messages or making requests of what's happening in live real time. I want people to understand this. This is the crime that we're trying to stop. This is the type of behavior that obviously any serious society would want to be trying to stop. But KBJ doesn't seem very interested in any of that when she's talking about judicial reform. And I'm going to set aside for a second here the fact that this isn't the role of a judge, right? The judge is supposed to sentence the person. The judge isn't supposed to be making law from the bench. That's judicial activism legislating for the bench. We're going to set that aside for a second because I want to talk about her judicial philosophy. Her judicial philosophy is one where society is really the one at fault and the criminal is actually the victim of society. And because she's a social reformer who believes in these ideas of criminal justice reform for pedophiles, she believes that if she can just set the right kind of deterrence program and set the right kind of, well, we're gonna monitor their internet activity and we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and that will somehow cure them of their, of their pedophilia. And yet there's never any instance that you're hearing in any of these responses about what about justice for the victims of these crimes? What about justice for the people? And she said, oh, it's only 15 minutes. Okay, how long is that child's life ruined and scarred because that person spent 15 minutes viewing it and because that was created? And also understand that every single time that image is viewed, that child is now re-victimized. You don't hear any of that. If the conservatives were smart here, they would bring up victim advocates to explain all of this to the court, to explain it to the Senate, and then we'll see. We will actually see which side is the one that prevails. Look, folks, it's no secret. Global conflicts are very likely to cause food shortages nationwide. That is why you need to go to the special website that we have set up right now for this. It's called preparewithposo.com. There you will find a generous offer from My Patriot Supply. And as you know, they are the nation's largest preparedness company with over 50,000 four-star and five-star reviews from customers who love their food. What do you do? You go to preparewithposo.com right now and you can save $150 on their amazing three-month emergency food kit. This kit provides breakfast, lunch, dinners, and snacks totaling over 2,000 calories a day for energy during these stressful times. Make sure to get one kit for each person in your family. You can also throw them in the back of your car for the peace of mind to know that you have it. Again, you go to preparewithposo.com. You get $150 off the food that you will need in the very near future. With food shortages making headlines, you really need to grab this emergency food now as a backup for your family's survival and for your peace of mind. Go to preparewithposo.com. That's preparewithposo.com. Assessment of what is going on, uh, in my view, uh, clearly indicates that 
what the American wants is unipolar world. Uh, there are uh, players who would never accept the global village under the American sheriff. Uh, and uh, China, India, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico. Uh, I am sure these countries do not want uh, to be just in a position when Uncle Sam uh, orders them something and they say, yes, sir. Uh, and of course, uh, Russia is not <laughs> uh, in the category of countries who would be, who would be ready to, uh, to do so. All right, so that's Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov breaking down that essentially Russia and the BRICS nations do not want the United States to be the world's sheriff in his words or the world police. You know, we used to hear that phrase again and again, the U.S. is acting as the world police. And for some reason, we don't talk about that anymore. But it seems as though the rest of the world, I guess they're kind of responding to the way the United States has been acting for the last 30 years. And they don't like it Um, because it turns out that the rest of the world Europe, Africa, South America, the Middle East, they get a vote. You know, we used to say that in the military, that when you're conducting planning exercises, when you're conducting operations exercises, you know, what's your, what's your plan going to be for the battle space? What's your, you know, what's your, um, your course of action? What's your COA? What's, you know, what, what is your CONOP? Well, the enemy gets a vote, right? The other side gets a vote too. And you think that you're just going to go and do all this stuff. You have to remember that human nature exists and human agency exists and that the other side is going to respond. And a lot of this stuff that's been built up over the years now is coming, right? The debt is coming due. The bill is being paid. And it looks like, unfortunately, this is all happening at the same time. So we're here one month in for the invasion of Ukraine. Today is the one month mark, 29 days exactly. Uh, Of course, February is a short month. So we're going to get in this, of course, from the French Ministry of Defense. The pressure on the urban centers of the east and south of Ukraine is being retained, in particular in Maripol, where the Russians are producing a highly, and this is, of course, the French translation, producing the effort. The general tactical situation remains fixed, but the Ukrainian forces have been leading some localized counterattacks on the northern front, Kiev. The encirclement maneuver has not yet been completed, and and they are constrained by the flooding of the Irpin River, that dam that was blown up. The town of Makariv would have been recaptured after a Ukrainian counterattack, but again, this flooding is creating a huge issue for the battlefield on the eastern front in Kharkov. The Russian encirclement maneuver is continuing. The strikes are intensifying. On that key central city of Dnepro, the Russian advance towards the point is slowed down by the fighting. They're fighting in the field. Forces are being degraded on both sides, and in particular for the troops arriving from the north and the east. They are really focusing on this key city. Now, digging in, the city of Mariupol. The rejection of the Russian ultimatum is the beginning of the start of the urban offensive supported by numerous strikes. Ukrainian forces are surrounded, period, in that southern key port city of Mariupol. On the southern front, Mikolaev, the shelling and fighting are still intense for control of the city and its surroundings. There are some Ukrainian counteroffenses that have been uh, let out. Strikes are blocking Russian progress. But as we've seen, the Russian forces march on. And something that I just wanted to get into in terms of this situation Now we see that Biden, President Biden, is going to be heading to Europe. He's heading to Brussels. He's going to give a convocation speech, right, this commencement speech um, for the EU. He's going to be meeting with NATO. But here's one aspect that seems to have been completely forgotten about. Where is the call for the peace talks? 
Where is the call for the facilitation of this? Is Biden, is President Biden going to sit down and say, look, Zelensky, Putin, we need you to meet. Your foreign ministers, we need you to meet. Erdogan, right? Turkey, of course, right across the Black Sea from Ukraine, right across from Crimea, a direct role in a lot of this by selling, uh, by they purchase weapons from Russia, but they also sell weapons to Ukraine. So Turkey has always kind of played this wild card role in the Middle East. Now, Turkey and Russia were also on opposite sides of the Syrian civil war. Turkey was trying to unseat Assad. Russia was trying to keep Assad in place. So the question then becomes, what will the role of Turkey be? But more to the point on a higher level, no one is even talking about peace talks, about ceasefire, about ending the shelling, getting families out of harm's way. And why is that? Is it just there's too much money to be made from war? Well, I guess that's what you get when you have a Secretary of Defense who comes directly from the board of Raytheon. Since you say you have listened to some of us speaking, you must have listened to us talking about a country called Libya, which from a country operating has been put into a very serious crisis. The Africans were there with a roadmap to solve the problem. They refused. They thought that the best thing is to bomb Libya out of this world. And they bombed it continuously, knowing very well that we don't agree. That is using their colonial position against those that they had colonized. And we now have ended up with that region totally undermined, and they are no longer there to solve the problems. Well, one of the most important meetings on the international stage took place yesterday in Moscow, Russia, headed by Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. And yet, most of the world didn't pay attention to this. I didn't see headlines for this across mainstream media. You go and check CNN, even Fox, not there. What was this meeting? Why was it so important? Well, this was a meeting of the ambassadors of the BRICS nations. What are the, what are the BRICS nations? What is BRICS? The BRICS is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. These are the five nations that are meeting together. Now, this group has been around for a long time. It's been around for years. But what they've always discussed is creating, essentially, a parallel economy a parallel world order, an alternative world order, as The Economist is talking about it, a way to get around U.S. sanctions, a way to get around U.S. economic interests, U.S. economic systems that are dominated by the West and dominated by the U.S. dollar. This is all about the five nations of BRICS coming after King Dollar. They are tired of being pushed around. They are tired of being told what to do. And you got countries now like Brazil which you'd think would ostensibly be a U.S. ally. India, which is now caught in the middle. They're no friend of China, of course, but they are close to Russia. And the United States has been pushing and pushing and pushing India, threatening sanctions, going after them, when India should be a huge partner with the United States against China. But of course, our leaders are idiots. And so now, not only... Did we drive Russia and China into each other's open arms, right? Two countries that should, by rights, be natural competitors. We're now even driving India closer 
towards the axis, this alliance between Russia and China. Why do we do this? Why do we fall into these same patterns that have felled so many hegemons, so many others that held the world reserve currency before us? It wasn't always the U.S. dollar that was the world reserve currency. Right prior to that, it was the British pound. Prior to that, it was the Danes. It was Denmark that had the world reserve currency because of their trade empire. So understand, these sorts of things, these levels of prosperity that the American people have held in the era since the fall of the Soviet Union, and even prior to that, since the end of the Cold or since the end of World War II, right? That isn't something that's going to last forever. That level of prosperity, the ability for us to spend ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. What happens if the U.S. dollar, if King dollar, doesn't become the world reserve currency anymore? You're already seeing the Saudis work to set up deals, oil deals with China that are going to be done using the U.N., so instead of the petrodollar, you might have the petro yuan, Chinese currency. What does this mean? That means the value of the dollar is going to drop on the world stage. Go talk to any currency trader you know, if you know anybody out there. They're going to tell you that the U.S. dollar is looking shaky right now. That there's a lot going on and a lot of chatter about where the U.S. dollar will be in a year, in five years, in 10 years. Mark my words, we are now in the midst of currency wars. And Lavrov talked about this. He came out at this meeting and said, we didn't expect the US to go after our currency like this. They didn't expect the US to use their sanctions to go after their foreign reserve holdings in Western banks. Probably should have, seeing as though the US has done that to Iran, to Afghanistan. That's why there's millions of people starving in Afghanistan right now, because the U.S. has frozen Afghan assets. Same type of sanctions regime, by the way, that Madeleine Albright used to talk about in Iraq, where over 500,000 children died because of U.S. siege tactics and sanction tactics. But she said that was a price that she was worth, right? She was worth paying. She was willing to pay that price. Why do we act like this? We act like a global bully, and we expect the rest of the world to fall in line. And now you got people like the BRICS nations that are meeting together and saying, you know what? Maybe we don't want to be under the thumb of the United States anymore. So everybody out there, you better wake up, and you better wake up fast, because this is the way the world is moving. Before crossing into Poland, Joanne never actually thought she'd be able to leave Ukraine. That's because she's a trans woman who was in the beginning stages of legally changing her gender marker before the war started. And she had only been able to update her birth certificate. Though she was eventually able to cross, many other members of the trans community have not been as lucky. Many of the trans women trying to flee Ukraine are being stopped by a ban on military-aged men from leaving the country. And while LGBTQ plus activists in Ukraine have made strides over the past couple of years, there are still many barriers for trans people. For example, people still need an outpatient psychiatric examination to change their gender markers, which can lead to inpatient hospitalization. 
meaning there are still many trans women with male markers on their IDs. Well, this certainly creates a dilemma for the left. Now, from Zero Hedge, the Ukrainian government is refusing to allow transgender women to leave the country, along with millions of women and children, refugees who have left have been streaming into Poland and other European nations. Instead, Ukrainian border guards are turning them back and forcing them to return home to join the fight. This is under martial law. Their reasoning might sour some trans activists in the West. Ukraine's martial law requires that all biological males between the ages of 18 and 16 remain in the country and fight. It makes no exceptions for trans women. An Italian paper quoted a trans woman who shared her experience at the hands of guards and reported that they said, they are men, they must turn back and fight. This certainly creates a dilemma for the left and certainly creates a dilemma for the alphabet groups, the trans rights groups across the West. But we've also got another story on this very same situation, but dealing with what's going on when the refugees arrive in Germany. This is out of the uh, the magazine Redux. A sex work advocacy organization is utilizing social media to solicit Ukrainian refugee women for information on entering the legal German sex trade. Berlin-based Trans Sex Works, which describes itself as a peer-to-peer support network and structure uh, for made up of trans and non-binary sex workers, has posted advertisements for counseling services targeting Ukrainian women who need support and info on how to begin sex work in Germany. We are now offering peer counseling and support in Ukrainian, Russian, and English for all sex workers fleeing the war in Ukraine, reads one post shared to their Instagram. This offer is open to all sex workers regardless of gender identity, since we do not see any other offer in cisgender sex workers arriving in Berlin. Isn't that nice? Isn't that so nice? So in Ukraine, according to these reports, Biological men who identify as trans women are kept behind to participate in the war under martial law. But the women who arrive to Germany, of course, you know, do they have any money? Can they access their money? We just talked about all the sanctions, crazy stuff that's going on with currency. Well, now they're at risk and you've got the German trans sex work community is going to recruit these women and saying, look, we know you're in dire situations. We know you're refugees. We know you're at risk, but don't worry. There's an exciting new opportunity for you as a sex worker. And that's, of course, by the way, you know, making sure that you avoid all of those other refugees, because we've already heard reports from a German hotel ship of Ukrainian women being raped by other refugees that were already there prior. We're idiots. This entire situation is insane. And that is all the time we have here today. Human Events Daily. Remember, our promise, our oath, our solemn vow to you. Be good, be brief, be gone. Your homework for us. Share this out with one of your normie friends and leave us your five-star review. Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. What did we talk about today? Judge KBJ, her confirmation hearing day four. We talked about her crazy judicial philosophy. Next, we gave you the ground update one month in, day 29, the invasion of Ukraine. Third, Russia meeting with the fellow BRICS ambassadors. What does this mean going forward? And finally, Ukraine blocking trans women escaping as refugees. And then now in Germany, these brothels recruiting Ukrainian refugees and at-risk women into the sex trade. 
in today's history break. The New York subway was struck ground today in 1900. That is how old our infrastructure and our subways and our systems are here in the United States. Maybe we could do something to actually update that. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, you have my permission to lay ashore. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard today's edition of Human Events Daily, powered by Turning Point USA. Today's top stories first, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation hearing day four. We're going to break down all the fireworks. Next, today is the one month uh, mark of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a ground update here on day 29. Third, Russia has met with their fellow BRICS ambassador nations. The currency wars have begun. And finally, Ukraine has begun blocking trans women from escaping as refugees. All of this and more ahead, Human Events Daily. On the internet, with one click, you can receive, you can distribute tens of thousands. You can be doing this for 15 minutes, and all of a sudden, you are looking at 30, 40, 50 years in prison. Good. Cut. Good. I understand. Absolutely Senator, good. I hope you are. To do good. Allow her to finish, please. I hope you go to jail for 50 years. If you're on the internet trolling for images please. of children and sexual exploitation, so you don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a that horrible thing. The so there's KBJ with this infamous, now infamous clip, which is actually far, far. Look, I, I know there's a lot of memes and a lot of jokes going around about her refusing to define what a woman is. I'm not a biologist, right? And it is kind of ridiculous, of course, that a Supreme Court nominee would make that kind of argument. But let's dig a little bit deeper, because I think the far more illustrative answer that she gave us is of this one here asking the question about child pornography, because she seems so incredibly focused and hung up on this idea that the distribution method, the method of conveyance of child pornography trafficking, whether it's someone who is distributing or collecting, that the method, the mode that is used for this communication, because it is digital versus analog when the laws are written, that that should change, right? That should change someone's sentence. And yet you never hear anything in this judicial philosophy about the actual reason for why the law was written in the first place to protect children who are the victims of child pornography. So just to be very clear about this, every piece of child pornography is an image or a video of a child being raped, either raped or exploited, because children obviously cannot give consent. And when you have a market for this, when you have a market for this type of material, that creates incentive for people to create more of it. That's the chain that you're trying to disrupt. That's the network that you're trying to disrupt. You want to stop people from doing it in the first place by de-incentivizing this type of behavior. And if you actually look at the way this is working now, you know, it's not just videos and images that have been sent like in the past, right? You can even have situations where, and I've looked at multiple federal cases like this, where they have centers where this is being done on live video in real time overseas. So they could be in Thailand, they could be in the Philippines, they could be somewhere in Eastern Europe, 
right? Obviously, Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, areas where this is being done. And so the pedophile can be inside the United States or somewhere in Western Europe, and then is then sending messages or making requests of what's happening in live real time. I want people to understand this. This is the crime that we're trying to stop. This is the type of behavior that obviously any serious society would want to be trying to stop. But KBJ doesn't seem very interested in any of that when she's talking about judicial reform. And I'm going to set aside for a second here the fact that this isn't the role of a judge, right? The judge is supposed to sentence the person. The judge isn't supposed to be making law from the bench. That's judicial activism legislating for the bench. We're going to set that aside for a second because I want to talk about her judicial philosophy. Her judicial philosophy is one where society is really the one at fault and the criminal is actually the victim of society. And because she's a social reformer who believes in these ideas of criminal justice reform for pedophiles, she believes that if she can just set the right kind of deterrence program and set the right kind of, well, we're gonna monitor their internet activity and we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and that will somehow cure them of their, of their pedophilia. And yet there's never any instance that you're hearing in any of these responses about what about justice for the victims of these crimes? What about justice for the people? And she said, oh, well, it's only 15 minutes. Okay, how long is that child's life ruined and scarred because that person spent 15 minutes viewing it and because that was created? And also understand that every single time that image is viewed, that child is now re-victimized. You don't hear any of that. If the conservatives were smart here, they would bring up victim advocates to explain all of this to the court, to explain it to the Senate, and then we'll see. We will actually see which side is the one that prevails. Assessment of what is going on, uh, in my view, uh, clearly indicates that what the American wants is a unipolar world. There are uh, players who would never accept the global village under the American sheriff. Uh, and uh, China, India, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico. Uh, I am sure these countries do not want uh, to be just in a position when Uncle Sam uh, orders them something and they say, yes, sir. Uh, and, of course, uh, Russia is not uh, in the category of countries who would be, who would be ready to, uh, to do so. All right, so that's Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov breaking down that essentially Russia and the BRICS nations do not want the United States to be the world's sheriff, in his words, or the world police. You know, we used to hear that phrase again and again, the U.S. is acting as the world police. And for some reason, we don't talk about that anymore, but it seems as though the rest of the world, I guess they're kind of responding to the way the United States has been acting for the last 30 years, and they don't like it. Because um, it turns out that the rest of the world, Europe, Africa, South America, the Middle East, they get a vote. You know, we used to say that in the military, that when you're conducting planning exercises, when you're conducting operations exercises, you know, what's your... What's your plan going to be for the battle space? What's your, you know, what's your, um, your course of action? What's your COA? What's, you know, what, what is your CONOP? Well, the enemy gets a vote. 
right? The other side gets a vote too. And you think that you're just going to go and do all this stuff. You have to remember that human nature exists and human agency exists and that the other side is going to respond. And a lot of this stuff that's been built up over the years now is coming, right? The debt is coming due. The bill is being paid. And it looks like, unfortunately, this is all happening at the same time. So we're here one month in for the invasion of Ukraine. Today is the one-month mark, 29 days exactly. Uh, Of course, February is a short month. So we're going to get in this, of course, from the French Ministry of Defense. The pressure on the urban centers of the east and south of Ukraine is being retained, in particular in Maripol, where the Russians are producing a highly, and gr- in, in, this is, of course, the French translation, producing the effort. The general tactical situation remains fixed, but the Ukrainian forces have been leading some localized counterattacks on the northern front, Kiev. The encirclement maneuver has not yet been completed, and, it, and they are constrained by the flooding of the Irpin River, that dam that was blown up. The town of Makariv would have been recaptured after a Ukrainian counterattack, but again, this flooding is creating a huge issue for the battlefield. On the eastern front in Kharkov, the Russian encirclement maneuver is continuing. The strikes are intensifying. On that key central city of Dnepro, the Russian advance towards the point is slowed down by the fighting. They're fighting in the field. Forces are being degraded on both sides, and in particular for the troops arriving from the north and the east. They are really focusing on this key city. Now, digging in, the city of Mariupol. The rejection of the Russian ultimatum is the beginning of the start of the urban offensive supported by numerous strikes. Ukrainian forces are surrounded, period, in that southern key port city of Mariupol. On the southern front, Mikolaev, the shelling and fighting are still intense for control of the city and its surroundings. There are some Ukrainian counteroffenses that have been uh, let out. Strikes are blocking Russian progress. But as we've seen, the Russian forces march on. And something that I just wanted to get into in terms of this situation Now we see that Biden, President Biden, is going to be heading to Europe. He's heading to Brussels. He's going to give a convocation speech, right, this commencement speech um, for the EU. He's going to be meeting with NATO. But here's one aspect that seems to have been completely forgotten about. Where is the call for the peace talks? Where is the call for the facilitation of this? Is Biden, is President Biden going to sit down and say, look, Zelensky, Putin, We need you to meet. Your foreign ministers, we need you to meet. Erdogan, right? Turkey, of course, right across the Black Sea from Ukraine, right across from Crimea. A direct role in a lot of this by selling, uh, by they purchase weapons from Russia, but they also sell weapons to Ukraine. So Turkey has always kind of played this wild card role in the Middle East. Now, Turkey and Russia were also on opposite sides of the Syrian civil war. Turkey was trying to unseat Assad. Russia was trying to keep Assad in place. So the question then becomes, What will the role of Turkey be? But more to the point, on a higher level, no one is even talking about peace talks, about ceasefire, about ending the shelling, getting families out of harm's way. And why is that? Is it just there's too much money to be made from war? Well, I guess that's what you get when you have a Secretary of Defense who comes directly from the board of Raytheon. Since you say you have listened to some of us speaking, You must have listened to us talking about a country called Libya, which from a country operating has been put into a very serious crisis. The Africans were there with a roadmap to solve the problem. They refused. They thought the best thing is to bomb Libya out of this world. And they bombed it continuously. 
knowing very well that we don't agree, that is using their colonial position against those that they had colonized. And we now have ended up with that region totally undermined, and they are no longer there to solve the problems. Well, one of the most important meetings on the international stage took place yesterday in Moscow, Russia, headed by Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. And yet, most of the world didn't pay attention to this. I didn't see headlines for this across mainstream media. You go and check CNN, even Fox, not there. What was this meeting? And why was it so important? Well, this was a meeting of the ambassadors of the BRICS nations. What are the, what are the BRICS nations? What is BRICS? The BRICS is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. These are the five nations that are meeting together. Now, this group has been around for a long time. It's been around for years. But what they've always discussed is creating, essentially, a parallel economy, a parallel world order, an alternative world order, as The Economist is talking about it, a way to get around U.S. sanctions, a way to get around U.S. economic interests, U.S. economic systems that are dominated by the West and dominated by the U.S. dollar. This is all about the five nations of BRICS coming after King Dollar. They are tired of being pushed around. They are tired of being told what to do. And you got countries now like Brazil, which you'd think would ostensibly be a U.S. ally, India, which is now caught in the middle. They're no friend of China, of course, but they are close to Russia. And the United States has been pushing and pushing and pushing India, threatening sanctions, going after them, when India should be a huge partner with the United States against China. But of course, our leaders are idiots. And so now, not only did we drive Russia and China into each other's open arms, right? Two countries that should, by rights, be natural competitors. We're now even driving India closer towards the axis, this alliance between Russia and China. Why do we do this? Why do we fall into these same patterns that have felled so many hegemons, so many others that held the world reserve currency before us? It wasn't always the U.S. dollar that was the world reserve currency, right? Prior to that, it was the British pound. Prior to that, it was the Danes. It was Denmark that had the world reserve currency because of their trade empire. So understand, these sorts of things... These levels of prosperity that the American people have held in the era since the fall of the Soviet Union and even prior to that since the end of the Cold or since the end of World War II, right? That isn't something that's going to last forever. That level of prosperity, the ability for us to spend ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. What happens if the US dollar, if King Dollar, doesn't become the world reserve currency anymore. You're already seeing the Saudis work to set up deals, oil deals with China that are going to be done using the UN. So instead of the petrodollar, you might have the petro UN, Chinese currency. What does this mean? That means the value of the dollar is going to drop on the world stage. Go talk to any currency trader you know, if you know anybody out there. 
they're going to tell you that the U.S. dollar is looking shaky right now, that there's a lot going on and a lot of chatter about where the U.S. dollar will be in a year, in five years, in 10 years. Mark my words, we are now in the midst of currency wars. And Lavrov talked about this. He came out at this meeting and said, we didn't expect the U.S. to go after our currency like this. They didn't expect the U.S. to use their sanctions to go after their foreign reserve holdings in Western banks. Probably should have, seeing as though the U.S. has done that to Iran, to Afghanistan. That's why there's millions of people starving in Afghanistan right now, because the U.S. has frozen Afghan assets. Same type of sanctions regime, by the way, that Madeleine Albright used to talk about in Iraq, where over 500,000 children died because of U.S. siege tactics and sanction tactics. But she said that was a price that she was worth, right? She was worth paying. She was willing to pay that price. Why do we act like this? We act like a global bully and we expect the rest of the world to fall in line. And now you got people like the BRICS nations that are meeting together and saying, you know what? Maybe we don't want to be under the thumb of the United States anymore. So everybody out there, you better wake up and you better wake up fast because this is the way the world is moving. Before crossing into Poland, Joanne never actually thought she'd be able to leave Ukraine. That's because she's a trans woman who was in the beginning stages of legally changing her gender marker before the war started. And she had only been able to update her birth certificate. Though she was eventually able to cross, many other members of the trans community have not been as lucky. Many of the trans women trying to flee Ukraine are being stopped by a ban on military-aged men from leaving the country. And while LGBTQ activists in Ukraine have made strides over the past couple of years, there are still many barriers for trans people. For example, people still need an outpatient psychiatric examination to change their gender markers, which can lead to inpatient hospitalization, meaning there are still many trans women with male markers on their IDs. Well, this certainly creates a dilemma for the left. Now, from Zero Hedge, the Ukrainian government is refusing to allow transgender women to leave the country, along with millions of women and children, refugees who have left have been streaming into Poland and other European nations. Instead, Ukrainian border guards are turning them back and forcing them to return home to join the fight. This is under martial law. Their reasoning might sour some trans activists in the West. Ukraine's martial law requires that all biological males between the ages of 18 and 16 remain in the country and fight. It makes no exceptions for trans women. An Italian paper quoted a trans woman who shared her experience at the hands of guards and reported that they said, they are men, they must turn back and fight. This certainly creates a dilemma for the left and certainly creates a dilemma for the alphabet groups, the trans rights groups across the West. But we've also got another story on this very same situation, but dealing with what's going on when the refugees arrive in Germany. This is out of the, uh, the magazine Redux. A sex work advocacy organization is utilizing social media to solicit Ukrainian refugee women for information on entering the legal German sex trade. Berlin-based Trans Sex Works, which describes itself as a peer-to-peer -peer support network and structure 
uh, from made up of trans and non-binary sex workers, has posted advertisements for counseling services targeting Ukrainian women who need support and info on how to begin sex work in Germany. We are now offering peer counseling and support in Ukrainian, Russian, and English for all sex workers fleeing the war in Ukraine, reads one post shared to their Instagram. This offer is open to all sex workers regardless of gender identity, since we do not see any other offer in cisgender sex workers arriving in Berlin. Isn't that nice? Isn't that so nice? So in Ukraine, according to these reports, Biological men who identify as trans women are kept behind to participate in the war under martial law. But the women who arrive to Germany, of course, you know, do they have any money? Can they access their money? We just talked about all the sanctioned crazy stuff that's going on with currency. Well, now they're at risk and you've got the German trans sex work community is going to recruit these women and saying, look, we know you're in dire situations. We know you're refugees. We know you're at risk, but don't worry. There's an exciting new opportunity for you as a sex worker. And that's, of course, by the way, you know, making sure that you avoid all of those other refugees, because we've already heard reports from a German hotel ship of Ukrainian women being raped by other refugees that were already there prior. We're idiots. This entire situation is insane. And that is all the time we have here today. Human Events Daily. Remember, our promise, our oath, our solemn vow to you. Be good, be brief, be gone. Your homework for us. Share this out with one of your normie friends and leave us your five-star review. Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. What did we talk about today? Judge KBJ, her confirmation hearing day four. We talked about her crazy judicial philosophy. Next, we gave you the ground update one month in, day 29, the invasion of Ukraine. Third, Russia meeting with the fellow BRICS ambassadors. What does this mean going forward? And finally, Ukraine blocking trans women escaping as refugees. And then now in Germany, these brothels recruiting Ukrainian refugees and at-risk women into the sex trade. Today's history break, the New York subway was struck ground today in 1900. That is how old our infrastructure and our subways and our systems are here in the United States. Maybe we could do something to actually update that. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, you have my permission to lay ashore.